Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Humanity has always been beset by disasters, whether they've been acts of God or something we somehow brought on ourselves. War, disease, earthquakes, famine, floods, volcanic eruptions, fire, plane crashes, industrial accidents, sinking ships, extreme weather. The worst disaster of all time? Probably the influenza epidemic of 1918 to 1920. It's possible that up to 100 million people died during that three-year period. Then again, World War II was worse. By some estimates, the death toll was 120 million. And the Black Death of the 14th century was really, really bad. It may have claimed up to 200 million lives, or about 20% of the population of the planet at the time. Then there are the kinds of things that happen when people are supposed to be having fun. On February 14, 2004, the roof of an indoor water park in Moscow collapsed, killing 28 people. On December 8, 1863, up to 3,000 people were killed in a fire at a church celebration in Santiago, Chile. Or how about something like this? Sometime around the year 283, a wall at Circus Maximus, the chariot racing stadium in Rome, collapsed. It said that 13,000 spectators died. And that happened about 150 years after a previous collapse where there were around 1,500 deaths. The universe is going to do what the universe is going to do. You can be as careful as humanly possible, yet still get caught up in something awful. This applies to the world of rock, too. It has seen its own situations where there has been loss of life. These occasions need to be remembered and memorialized so we can minimize the chances of these things ever happening again. This is a list of rock's greatest disasters. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. The Tragically Hip from 1994 and the Day for Night album with Nautical Disaster. That's one of the many hip songs that grew from Gord Downey's improvisations in the middle of performances of New Orleans' Sinking. Gord was a really well-read guy, and he probably took inspiration from the story of the sinking of the Bismarck off the coast of France by British planes on May 26, 1941. 2,200 people died in that battle. Another possibility was that he was thinking of Captain Quint in the movie Jaws when he told the story of the sinking of a ship where 1,100 men went into the water and 316 came out, and the sharks took the rest. Hey, Jaws is one of Gord's all-time favorite movies. That explains why he wore that t-shirt on the last hip tour. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and I'm warning you, this is going to be a grim episode. We're going to look at some of the worst music-related disasters in history, and the body count is high. We're going to start with something that claimed a single life, but had ramifications worldwide. On Saturday, June 16, 2012, a stage was almost finished being built at Downsview Park in Toronto, ahead of that night's gig headlined by Radiohead. At about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, just before the band was due on stage for a sound check, something that had been delayed because things were running behind, and about an hour before the gates were to open, the stage roof collapsed. Scott Johnson, Phil Selway's drum tech, was crushed by a 5,000-pound video monitor. Three other people were hurt, one seriously. Most of the band's lighting and stage gear was written off. 
In the aftermath, a long and confusing inquest was held involving the Ontario Ministry of Labor, Live Nation, the promoter, and Optex, the company commissioned to build the stage. The first case ended in a mistrial on a technical reason, so things had to start from scratch. In the end, it was determined that the roof design was outdated and not capable of holding 76,000 pounds of equipment. 28 recommendations came from a jury looking into the disaster, and Scott Johnson's death was declared accidental. The engineer at the center of everything acknowledged that errors were made, but nobody ever went to jail. Radiohead didn't play Toronto again until July 19, 2018. The case had stalled at the time, so Tom York was very vocal about what was going on from the stage. And then the band held a moment of silence for Scott, which, in all honesty, probably could have gone better. Radiohead then launched into this song. Limp Biscuit found themselves in a bad situation at the Big Day Out Festival in Sydney, Australia. During their set, a massive mosh pit formed in front of the stage. A woman named Jessica Michalik was crushed. Security got her out of the pit and to the hospital, but she died of a heart attack five days later. The band says they tried to tell organizers that they needed to take more precautions, and in the end, an investigation by the state coroner found that the promoters were, in fact, liable for not policing the crowd density in front of the stage. At the same time, Limp Biscuit, vocalist Fred Durst especially, riled up the crowd so much that something bad was almost an inevitability. Lawsuits were filed, but all were dismissed. But then, in 2005, Limp Bizkit was sued by an insurance company so they wouldn't have to pay legal fees. Again, the charge was that Durst had incited the crowd, causing them to rush the stage. Next on the list is the Donington disaster of August 28, 1988. This was a big outdoor rock show at a racetrack in Donington, England. Guns N' Roses, Kiss, Iron Maiden, and others were on the bill. During the gunner set, there was a crowd collapse situation. Two men were stuck at the bottom of the pile, and they were pushed so deep into the mud that their dead bodies literally needed to be dug out. We've just started. More of rocks and music's greatest disasters coming up. Here's the story of another crowd collapse. This one happened in front of the Orange Stage at the Roskill Festival in Denmark on June 30th, 2000. At around 10.30 that night, with 50,000 people on site, Pearl Jam started their set. About 30 minutes into the show, a bunch of people fell down, all in one specific area, knocked off balance by waves undulating through the crowd on the rain-slick, muddy ground. 
This created a hole in the crowd consisting of people who had fallen. Even though it was only a few meters square, it created a negative space that quickly filled up with bodies. Although this happened fairly close to the stage, it was far enough away and the crowd was thick enough that security had a hard time reaching the area. Pearl Jam stopped the show, but for many it was too late. Those at the bottom of that initial hole died of asphyxiation, probably within five minutes of falling down. Ten ambulances were rushed to the scene. In total, nine people died. Twenty-six were injured, three of them seriously. No one was found to be on drugs or seriously drunk. There was a massive investigation into what happened, and Pearl Jam was so traumatized by the event that they seriously considered breaking up. Here's their statement. This is so painful. I think we are all waiting for someone to wake us up and say, it was just a horrible nightmare. And there are absolutely no words to express our anguish in regard to the parents and loved ones of these precious lives that were lost. We have not yet been told what actually occurred, but it seemed to be random and sickeningly quick. It doesn't make sense. When you agree to play at a festival of this size and reputation, it is impossible to imagine such a heart-wrenching scenario. Our lives will never be the same, but we do know that nothing is compared to the grief of the families and the friends of those involved. It is so tragic. There are no words. In the end, some new safety measures were put in place that were subsequently adopted by festivals around the world. In 2002, Pearl Jam released a single called Love Boat Captain from the Riot Act album. If you listen to the lyrics, you'll hear a reference to the nine fans Pearl Jam and everybody lost that day. Pearl Jam and Love Boat Captain, referencing the nine fans who died during their set at the Roskilde Festival in 2000. Eddie Vedder has addressed the Roskilde tragedy several times. This is from June 27, 2007 in Copenhagen. But, uh, you know, it wasn't just, uh, it wasn't just a, you know, I know that we were here as a band, but also our family. We all went through that together, all of our crew that we've been with for 15 years years and uh and i know a lot of you were there and uh and your friends were there and and, uh i also we showing such strength to be here and we were so i can't tell you it is the highest honor to have your presence here tonight is some of the family and relatives and friends of uh, those who we miss so much over the last seven years. Thank you so much. Somebody, somebody said uh, to me that, that this would be uh, this would be good. That this would be uh, there would be some closure, and and I said no. There, there's no there's no closure. Is that the word in English? There's no closure. That, that you know, there's no end of the street. You know, we're we're all 
we each have our own road and we all have these roads and these paths and, and they're still going. And, and so I see it and we see it as, as all of us, all of our roads meeting together here again after seven years and meeting together and seeing each other down the road and gathering and seeing that we're, we're doing okay and that we've learned things and we've come closer and we've become smarter and we've become better people and more caring and more understanding of the world and more understanding of loss and, um, and uh, it's just, I'm so glad, we are so glad we had this opportunity to connect like this and, and, and I, I imagine there's some healing happening and, and I feel it and I hope you do too and thank you so much for being now let's move on to something that happened in Houston in late 2021. Ten people died during Travis Scott set during the Astroworld Festival on November 5th, 2021. Eight on site and two more later in the hospital, all of something called compressive asphyxiation and all between the ages of 14 and 27. Around 300 people, at least 300 people, were injured. Again, it was another crowd crush situation. They were trampled and smothered in a gross failure of crowd control, crowd safety, and security. And while this was happening, Travis Scott continued with his set for over an hour. The investigation into this one will take a very long time, and it'll take forever to sort out the more than 3,000 lawsuits that have been filed. Meanwhile, promoters worldwide have noted what happened and have changed the way festivals are policed and secured. Staging a music festival is a complicated thing. Whenever you have the population of a decent-sized city hanging around in a field for a day or a weekend, you're going to have challenges. Add in heat, poor sanitation, rain, drugs, alcohol, and things can get out of control very quickly. Take the case of the 30th anniversary Woodstock concert in Rome, New York, on July 23rd, 24th, and 25th, 1999. The event was held at an old Air Force base that had been declared, believe it or not, a hazardous waste site. Temperatures were in the high 30s. Because it was an Air Force base, there were miles and miles of hot concrete and asphalt. And because it was an Air Force base, there weren't exactly a lot of trees with shade. So why hold it there? Because Air Force bases tend to have a defensible perimeter. So no gate crashers like Woodstock organizers saw in 1994 and also in 1969. Things were pretty screwed up from the start. Planners really messed up. High ticket prices. People stood in line for the water fountains for hours. All the portable toilets overflowed. Even some of the security people hired for the gig walked off the job. You couldn't bring in your own food. And when you got on site, you found that a bottle of water was four bucks. And if you wanted a bag of ice, that was 15. Those prices were set by the organizers, not the vendors, apparently. When the vendors asked if they could cut people some slack with prices, the Woodstock people said, no, 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 that's, that's going to cut into our profits. Now, that point has been disputed, but it was brought up. Add in the fact that the lineup was filled with intense and angry new metal bands. Limp Bizkit, Korn, Kid Rock, Rage Against the Machine, Metallica, tons of male rage and testosterone. The frustration and the negative energy of the 200,000 people grew into hatred, and the hatred turned into violence. By Sunday, it was downright scary and dangerous. The mob took over, starting with a ton of vandalism after Limp Bizkit played their hit Break Stuff on Saturday. The vibe continued through Sunday, and that's when the real violence began. The Chili Peppers took the stage that night, and things went to hell. 
A peace group called PAX had given away 100,000 candles with the idea of holding a Sunday night candlelight vigil during the pepper set. But the mob used the candles to set everything on fire. Vendor booths were looted and then went up in flames. Bonfires were started. The walls surrounding the site were made up of 12-foot sheets of plywood, and they burned real good, too. The on-site ATM machines were savaged. Merchandise tables and storage areas were cleaned out and then burned. Even one of the speaker towers was set on fire and toppled over. MTV described the scene as out of a concentration camp. In other words, it was ultra-ugly. And it was probably a bad idea for the Chili Peppers to launch into their cover of Jimi Hendrix's Fire, which, you know... Only encouraged more fire. Six people were injured and just seven were initially arrested. But many more people were injured and there were many reports of sexual assault. Plus, the property damage was off the charts. Investigations that followed resulted in a total of 39 arrests on charges that ranged from disorderly conduct to, wait for it, sodomy. And there was at least one death. A 31-year-old man from St. Petersburg, Florida, died of heat exhaustion complicated by diabetes. Bottom line was that Woodstock 99 has gone down in history as one of the worst events of its kind ever. A total disaster. In 2016, there was another kind of disaster at the Time Warp Festival in Buenos Aires. Six people died on the first night from bad drugs. Four others were hospitalized in critical condition. They were all poisoned. It was so bad that the second day of the festival was immediately canceled. The festival organizers were arrested and charged with facilitating a place where people could purchase drugs. Argentina banned electronic music festivals after that. Whenever you go through the stories of rock disasters, you always end up what happened at a Who concert in Cincinnati on December 3rd, 1979. 18,348 tickets had been sold for a show at Riverfront Coliseum. It was a total sellout. Word came from a local radio station that the doors would open at 3 p.m. That never happened, and by 5 o'clock, there was a big crowd outside with many people holding general admission tickets. They wanted to get in first so they could be as close to the stage as possible. At first, only two doors were open, and some people got in. But everyone else waiting in front of the doors were stuck with nowhere to go. At 7.15, they heard some music coming from inside the venue. Thinking that The Who had gone on stage earlier than scheduled, everybody started to push forward towards the doors that were open, which were only those two original doors. Somebody threw a bottle and broke the glass on the doors. And then it was on. The crowd attacked the doors as everyone from behind pushed. But the pressure was such that no one could open any of the other doors. In the crush over the next 40 minutes, people were trampled and injured. 11 people died of asphyxiation, and 26 others were hurt. Most of the dead were in their teens and early 20s. Here's a news report from back then. And now, a rock concert in the news. Thousands of young people had gathered hours early to get into Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati, Ohio. The attraction was the British rock band, The Who. Suddenly, one pair of doors to the Coliseum was broken open and the waiting throng rushed inside, eager to get the best possible seats. In the stampede, 11 people were killed, eight others seriously injured. Rock music fans everywhere were shocked. Observers blamed the tragedy on several factors. Most of the seats, 80%, were general admission. That meant the first fans into the Coliseum would get the best places, and that encouraged the rush. 
Also, many of the kids had been waiting hours to get in. Some had been drinking or using drugs. The concert went on as planned, but the members of the Who were badly shaken. If it had happened inside the hall, I don't think I would ever play again. There is a kind of a football game, boxing match feeling to a rock concert, and it's what guys seem to get off on. You know, they like, uh, they like this high energy sort of event. The Who asked authorities to help make future rock concerts safe. And later this week, their concert in Buffalo, New York was. Unlike Cincinnati, all Buffalo seats were reserved. I'm Christopher Glenn with a rock tragedy in the news. Another 11 people died in a stampede at a music festival in Morocco on May 23, 2009. The gig was in the Hay Nada Stadium in the city of Rabat. And the attraction was a free concert by Abdelaziz Stati. Other gigs were happening around the area, including one by Stevie Wonder. And as all the other shows finished up, everyone, about 70,000 in total, moved to the stadium. A stampede resulted. A wire fence collapsed and eight people were caught underneath. Eleven dead of asphyxiation and close to a dozen injured. Twenty-one people died in the German city of Duisburg on July 24, 2010. It was the annual free Love Parade Electronic Dance Music Festival. The one entrance to the festival grounds involved a long, narrow tunnel. When police saw that it was getting really, really dangerously crowded, they sealed off the tunnel and shouted at people to turn around and get back. But people kept pushing into the tunnel. There was a crush, and the pressure was so great that autopsies on the dead revealed that all their ribs had been broken. Fifteen people died on site, while another six died in hospital. More than 700 injuries were reported. In 2014, a German band called Axis released this song called 21 Crosses, which demanded answers. Four children dying in the panic crowd Still hear them crying out loud Will you take away the tears today when we play? That song ends with a recitation of the names of all the people who died during the 2010 Love Parade disaster. Still to come, fires, more stampedes, and even a couple of terrorist attacks. This program is a grim accounting of the worst disasters in the history of music, and rock specifically. And here's the first fire on the list. It's known as the Ghost Ship Disaster. Just before midnight on December 2nd, 2016, an old warehouse in Oakland, California, that had been converted into a series of artist lofts, went up in flames during a concert in the building. This was supposed to be just an industrial site. It had not been zoned for residential or entertainment purposes. That means inadequate safety measures everywhere. There were piles of flammable trash and debris. Some illegal construction had taken place with no inspections. There were no sprinklers. There were no fire alarms, no smoke alarms, no fire extinguishers, inadequate exit routes, electrical problems. The place was a death trap. The concert was on the second floor and put on by a house music label called 100% Silk. Somewhere around 100 people were there. And then the fire breaks out. It looks like it may have been a bad electrical appliance. Maybe a fridge. Maybe something else. Maybe it was just an overloaded electrical circuit. Whatever the case, when the fire broke out, it quickly started to consume all the flammable stuff in the building. And because there had been so much makeshift construction, getting out was almost impossible because it was a maze. And no one could see because of the thick, dark smoke. It was also midnight. The main staircase down from the second floor was made of nothing more than wooden pallets. And when it went up in flames, there was no way down. People were trapped. The fire got bigger and bigger. And 22 minutes after the first fire trucks arrived, the second floor collapsed. 
36 people died. The master tenant of the building and his assistant were charged with involuntary manslaughter. One of them was acquitted, and the other was sentenced to 12 years in jail. Lawsuits flew. $33 million was paid out in one series. And the electric company settled another series of suits out of court. Here's another stampede tragedy. On May 30th, 1991, thousands of people were at a music and beer festival in the Belarusian city of Minsk when a storm hit. Hundreds of people ran for the nearby underground metro station to get out of the rain and the lightning and the thunder. But because the music festival involved a lot of beer, many people were quite drunk. The rain made the steps of the station very slippery. There was pushing and shoving. Many women were wearing high heels, and they were among the first to slip and fall down the stairs. That's when the bodies started piling up. When emergency responders arrived, they found two layers of people. On the bottom layer, everybody was dead, crushed by a second layer on top of them. The death toll was at least 53, with somewhere around 150 injured, some of them very badly. One of the most shocking terrorist attacks to ever hit Europe happened at a concert on November 13, 2015, at a Paris venue called the Bataclan. The show was sold out, packed with French fans of Eagles of Death Metal, there were about 1,500 people in the building. The show started at 8.45. Tonight, you can become possessed by the spirit of rock and roll. Are you with it? At 9.45, with the band about 45 minutes into their set, a couple of explosions went off outside the Stade de France. There was a couple of suicide bombers. At that very same time, a group of gunmen drove up to a row of restaurants with outdoor patios and opened fire with AK-47s. Another guy walked into a bar and blew himself up. Then a black Volkswagen bearing Belgian license plates that had been badly parked nearby the Bataclan for two hours showed signs of movement. Three men, all dressed in black and wearing suicide vests, were inside. At 9.42, a text message was sent by one of them. We've left. We're starting, it read. At 9.49, the men got out with AK-47s. They walked to the door of the Bataclan and shot the doorman and some people who were smoking outside. Then they muscled their way inside just as Eagles of Death Metal were playing this song. Eagles of Death Metal got as far as the guitar solo before the gunman opened fire. Guitar tech first thought it was just the sound system getting fried, maybe some fuses popping, but no. Standing at the back of the concert hall, the gunman just stood there, firing off round after round after round in the crowded general admission area in front of the stage. The first victims were standing at the bar at the back near the door. It sounded like this. It was chaos. The lights went out with the only illumination coming from muzzle flashes. People hit the floor looking for cover. The shooting lasted for at least 10 minutes before the gunman reloaded. And then they started to shoot again, at random. They found four survivors on the floor and shot them, after kicking bodies to see if anyone was playing dead. Anyone else who moved when they got kicked were shot. Two gunmen went up into the balconies and shot more people while the third stayed downstairs, picking off people trying to escape. Meanwhile, during that brief break in the gunfire, when everybody was reloading, people tried to escape. Those up in the balconies sought safety in the toilets or on the roof by forcing open a trapdoor. 
Others broke open the false ceiling and hid in the metal rafters. Some found their way into the dressing rooms where the band was, barricading the door with a fridge and some furniture. Some managed to escape through the emergency exits behind a curtain on the stage, scrambling over dead bodies on the floor. At 10.15, police arrived and locked down the building. One of the attackers was killed as he stood on stage pointing his gun at the door. The remaining two took about 20 hostages in the balcony. Some were forced to act as lookouts, and if they refused, they were threatened with being shot. Both gunmen retreated to a room at the end of a hallway that was only about a meter wide. About 20 hostages were in front of them, acting as human shields. The cops tried to negotiate over a cell phone for almost an hour, but all the gunmen wanted to talk about was what France was doing in Syria. At 12.18 a.m., the order was given to storm the gunmen. That lasted for three minutes. The first gunman detonated a suicide belt. The second tried the same thing, but was shot first. After that, it was just a matter of sorting the dead from the injured from the traumatized. In the end, 89 people died, including the Eagles of Death Metal tour manager. In all, 20 men were charged with plotting these different attacks, the stadium, the restaurants, the bar, and the Bataclan. The trial went on for years, finally wrapping up in 2022. Along with the rest of the band and 300 survivors, Eagles of Death Metal singer Jesse Hughes returned to Paris to testify. Evil did not win, he said. You can't kill rock and roll. Three months after the shootings, Eagles of Death Metal returned to Paris to finish the show. And they did. Here are a few more disasters. January 1st, 2009, a fire broke out at the Santika Club in Bangkok. 66 people died, 222 injured. Then there's the Station Nightfire Club in Warwick, Rhode Island on February 20th, 2003. That was awful. Great White was performing when some pyro ignited some flammable acoustic foam in the walls and ceilings, like this. It took about a minute for almost everything to go up in a flash. Within two minutes, you couldn't see because there was thick black smoke everywhere. In the rush to get out, a hundred people were killed. 230 were injured. The Beverly Hills Super Club fire south of Cincinnati killed 165 people on May 28, 1977. The attraction that night was singer John Davidson. The fire code capacity was 1,500, but there were 3,000 people there. Overcrowding mixed with faulty wiring and inadequate fire exits were to blame. We can probably include the Moscow Theater hostage crisis that began on October 23, 2002 on our list. This is when Chechen rebels took over the Dubrokva Theater, where around 900 people were watching a musical. Up to 50 armed gunmen stormed the place. The crisis lasted four days. It ended when authorities pumped in a noxious gas, apparently based on fentanyl, in hopes of anesthetizing everyone, including the gunmen. But some of the hostage takers had gas masks. The shooting started. No one is sure exactly how many people died. Could be 200, could be 300, could be more. Over 700 were injured. And if you want to go down a real rabbit hole, read up on how this tragedy spiraled into a number of theories and conspiracies that led back through Russia's FSB security service all the way up to Vladimir Putin. And finally, the Cro-Manon fire in Buenos Aires. A rock band called Caleros was playing for 4,000 people. This was December 30th, 2004. The problem was that the legal capacity of this venue was just 1,500. 
And like the Station Club fire in Rhode Island, some pyro ignited some insulating foam on the roof in a plastic net filled with decorations. It took seconds for it to literally start raining fire on the crowd. Four of the six doors leading out were locked. Two emergency exits were blocked. There were no fire safety systems, including no alarm. And of the 15 fire extinguishers on site, 10 didn't work. In the end, 194 people died and 1,432 were injured. The trial that followed resulted in people being sent to jail for as long as 20 years. The members of the band, Caballeros, didn't face any jail time in the first trial in 2009, but they were ruled to have shared responsibility in the second trial in 2011. Why? Because witnesses said that they encouraged the crowd to fire off flares. Concerts and festivals are generally much, much safer than they used to be. Crowd control, security, fire safety, and emergency response has improved greatly. Some festivals even take great care to ensure that no bad drugs are sold on site. But as we saw with Astro World, problems remain. The biggest incentive to improve things is money. Sorry to say that, but it's true. Specifically, any lawsuits that might result from something going wrong. Just ask Live Nation and Travis Scott how expensive that can be. Unfortunately, disasters like this affect all of us. Concerts and festivals require insurance. And when something bad happens and payouts are necessary, insurance premiums go up. And that gets passed on in the price of a concert ticket. And if you don't have insurance, man, you should not be in the music venue business at all. More stories can be found with the hundreds of ongoing history podcasts available on all platforms. Just download and go. I also invite you to join me at my website, which is ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated daily, and you should have the free daily newsletter by now. We can connect on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you feel the need to send some email, do it. I'm at alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Be careful out there. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 